tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent Royal Hundred course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. It's a funny old time right now in the world, isn't it? More people than ever are on the move. Whether it's from environmental disasters, political crises, or famine, the United Nations estimates that over 60 million people were displaced from their homes in 2016, a number expected to rise by the end of this year. And perhaps no region has drawn more attention to the refugee crisis than Syria. Now, the UN estimates that the Syrian conflict, now in its eighth year, has produced more refugees, around 12 million, than any other region on Earth. Articles like those in The Economist have estimated that now more than half the country's population, once estimated at around 20 million, now live outside the country's borders as refugees. Now, there's really no recommended packing list when you're a refugee. Fleeing for your life or your family's life often means you barely have time to pack a suitcase, let alone most of your life's possessions. And when photos or family heirlooms have to be left behind, what can you do to remind yourself of your family or your house, your street even, your village or your community? It's a question that's been at the heart of any person who has had to leave home, whether in 2017 or 1917. And time and time again, people have turned to one thing, almost more than any other, to remind them of the people and places they've left behind. Food. Food has a magical ability to transport us. Through the sound of a stew bubbling away on a stove, the touch of freshly baked homemade bread, or the smell of a favorite spice blend. It can bring us home in an instant reminding us of great times and great people, even when they're a hundred or even a thousand miles away. The power of food as memory, not to mention as an important symbol of culture and community, is certainly not forgotten among the Syrian refugee community today. Oh My Sweet Land, a play written by Amir Nizar Zouabi, recounts a woman's search for her Syrian cultural inheritance through food. The play has already made its way to Toronto and London, 
But if you're lucky enough to catch it while it's on its run in New York City, the immediacy of food and memory is all the more apparent. Each performance of the play takes place in a different apartment kitchen, either in a private home or a local community center. The only character in this one-person play, a woman prepares a traditional Syrian dish. Kibbe. Croquettes of cracked wheat, pine nuts, marjoram, and sumac. And while she cooks, the woman recalls the refugee experiences of Syrians throughout the world. Here's Corinne Jaber, who took on the role of the central character in the London version of Oh My Sweet Land, from an interview she gave in 2014. Wherever you go, people will always cook, and people will always prepare food, and people will always prepare food with great attention. And the more dire the situation is, the more you pay attention to the spices and the food and the way you cook. Just because you are in living through a war or a tragedy or trauma um, or are poor doesn't mean you don't cook and pay attention to food. So that was really important. And it was then something to balance the horror of what we're saying with something very practical that you will always come back to as a human being. Um, And in this case, this woman who then obsessively cooks because that is her way of being in touch with Syria and with this man she's fallen in love with. The Syrian refugee crisis has dominated headlines throughout the world for the last several years, not least of all in the United States. And as current as the crisis remains, there is another Syrian immigrant story to tell, one that took place more than 100 years ago. But just like today, the role of food was as integral a part in the experience of Syrians as they left their homes in the Middle East and settled in what was at the time the gateway to the United States, New York City. It's a story that explores the rise of a neighborhood that became known as Little Syria, or even occasionally, the Mother Colony, the very heart of Syrian communities in the 1890s and 1900s America. Today we're going to explore the Syrian immigrant experience, both past and present, through food. We'll talk with Dr. Linda K. Jacobs, a direct descendant of some of the first Syrian immigrants to New York City at the turn of the 20th century. She's also author of Strangers in the West, the Syrian Colony of New York City, 1880-1900. Linda's work has uncovered the rich history of what was known as Little Syria, the bedrock of Syrian expat communities in the United States, on a small stretch of Manhattan on the Lower West Side. But today we'll also learn where you can still find strong echoes of this little community in 21st century New York, particularly on a certain bit of Atlantic Avenue in the epicenter of modern hipsterdom itself, Brooklyn. We'll talk to Tracy Curvels, blogger and author of the NYC Kitchen Cookbook, about all the delicious shops you can still find along Atlantic Avenue today. These days, it might be known for craft beer pickles and some ironic facial hair, but Atlantic Avenue has a long history of great food, art, and literature, with no small thanks to the Syrian communities that set up shops here in the 1930s and 1940s. But let's start at the beginning. Forget the 21st century for a minute. We're heading back to the 1890s of New York City. Let's take a look at the city as many a new arrival would have seen it at the time. Now, as immigrants, we would have just been processed at the brand new Ellis Island, 
opened only a few years ago in 1890. And now that we've gone through the paperwork and passed our medical exams, we're free to head across the Hudson River to make our first proper landing in New York. From our view aboard the ferry, we can just see the southern edge of Manhattan. And you can just make out the Manhattan Life Building, completed only in 1894, the first building in the city to reach over 330 feet in height. Now, at the time, Manhattan still feels like an island. Although the Brooklyn Bridge has been open for the better part of a decade, the Manhattan and Williamsburg bridges won't be completed for another five to ten years. Subway trains won't appear until 1905. But don't get me wrong, New York is already hustling. Over 20 daily newspapers serve the city, including several foreign language papers, catering to the numerous Yiddish, German, Italian, and Arabic-speaking communities that have already established themselves in neighborhoods throughout New York. And when we step off our ferry at the Battery, on the lower west side of Manhattan, we're already in the heart of one of those neighborhoods. This is Little Syria, a small community that starts at the Battery and moves its way north along Washington Street up to Carlisle. It's a vibrant neighborhood, chock full with shops, restaurants, and homes. So it ran from, from Battery Park, which is where new immigrants landed, uh, when they arrived. Um, and so the Washington Street faced on Battery Park and went north. Um, and the Syrians lived a few actually on the north side of Battery Park and then on, the, on, on Washington Street primarily, on the east side of Washington Street, and then on some of the cross streets, um, Carlisle, and all the way up to, to Cedar Street. So about four blocks of east-west streets, and mainly on Washington Street. My name is Linda Jacobs. I have a PhD in Near Eastern archaeology, but I am um, 100% Lebanese. Both my parents are um, Lebanese-Americans. They grew up in uh, what uh, was called Little Syria in the 20s and the 30s um, on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And when I started becoming interested in their histories and some of the myths that I thought were attached to our family story, um, I started doing research and realized that no one had ever written about the 19th century Syrian colony. Linda's research documents some of the earliest stories of Syrian immigration to the United States. From barely a trickle before 1880... The last 15 years of the 19th century saw a wave of Syrians landing on America's eastern shores. And just like today, politics, economics, and religion had spurred people to leave their homes in areas that would today be considered Syria and Lebanon. There was a conflation of factors, but probably the most important of which was the fact that the Syrian, um, the Syrian silk industry was being undercut by um, the Far East, and uh, the Syrians had invested almost all of their agricultural land and all of their resources in producing silk for the French market. And when those prices began to be undercut by um, ships coming through the Suez Canal, this, the silk prices plummeted and um, the silk market was plunged into chaos, and the people in Mount Lebanon were 
and starting to uh, be hungry and starting to lose their income. And compounded with that was the fact that they had converted a lot of their agricultural land to mulberry trees to, on which the silkworms were um, breeding and eating. And mulberry trees do not provide enough food for you, so you need cash to buy food now because you're not producing food. And so the, it, it wasn't there wasn't hunger in Mount Lebanon and in Syria and greater Syria, but there was beginning to be a real problem with income. Before 1885, few Syrians, it seems, chose to make the long trek to New York. City records show a grand total of 12 Syrian immigrants arriving in the city between 1880 and 1885. But the die had been cast. The reality of the death of the Syrian silk market slowly sunk in as local businesses and family silk farms dried up. American Christian missionaries, increasingly active in the Middle East, told tales of a gleaming land of opportunity just a short boat ride away. And when the Ottoman Empire, the local political power at the time, finally lifted its ban on emigration in 1896, Syrians felt even freer to try their luck halfway across the world in a place called New York City. But if anyone was hoping to grow silkworms on the Lower West Side, they had another thing coming. Syrians needed to find new ways to support themselves in this urban environment. Many turned to peddling, selling linens or low-cost jewelry on the street. Others managed boarding houses, and many of the local Arabic newspapers were staffed by the growing Syrian community. But then, of course, there was the food. Because many of the tenements Syrians lived in didn't have running water, let alone kitchens, many families relied on restaurants for their daily food. With the entire family having to go out to eat, this, according to Linda Jacobs, had a surprising effect on traditional Syrian gender roles. Even though they catered mostly to men, because that is the Syrian tradition that women do not go out to restaurants, that men do, in the New World where women were peddling um, almost as often as men, and women didn't have kitchens either. So women had to have some place to eat. And so um, they started uh, mixing the sexes earlier, I would say, in the United States than they did in Syria itself. So it was kind of, uh, it was never thought of this way, but it was kind of revolutionary from my point of view. Syrians didn't even talk about it at all. And by the end of the 19th century, Linda Jacobs estimates there were at least 12 different restaurants catering to the Little Syrian community in Washington Street. But what were these restaurants serving? Was it home-style Syrian classics, just like Mom used to make? Or was this a new fusion cuisine, blending the produce of New York with traditional Syrian cooking? It can be hard to find out. It seems people weren't as much into cataloging their dining experiences as they are today. We can learn a bit about these restaurants thanks to their coverage by the local press, but maybe not in the way you might expect. The Arabic newspapers barely mention the presence of these restaurants, let alone have any 19th century version of a food and wine section. So we often have to piece together what the Syrian communities thought of the food. Sometimes all we have to go on is whether a restaurant lasted in the community. If it did, well... Someone had to be enjoying the food. Otherwise, we have to turn to another source to learn about the restaurants of Little Syria. 
the so-called American press, that is, the English newspapers of New York City. Now, they were fascinated by the cuisine of Little Syria, frequently sending reporters in to try the dishes, taste the Iraq, maybe even sample a water pipe. There was this combination of condescension and fascination, but it was rather benign. They never said, oh, these people are disgusting, or all these people are, you know, this food is disgusting. They never said that. It was all just very quite strange to them. So from the American side, it was a source of, the restaurants were a source of endless, endless fascination for them. They'd never seen the food before. They'd never seen the bread, which they described in various ways. They they look like wheels of a cart or, you know, they're enormous, these enormous circles. Um, They'd never seen yogurt before. They'd never, any of those things. So they described them as well as they could with comparisons to American food that they knew. They They couldn't pronounce the names and they couldn't spell them for the American press. So they were always garbled and that kind of thing. Despite the condescending attitude, coverage by the American press provides some of the only clues to the type of meals, as well as their prices, served in the Washington Street restaurants. Journalists would occasionally even reprint entire menus from their visits within their articles. One such by Cromwell Child that appeared in the 1899 New York Times describes a restaurant known as Arta's, run by the self-proclaimed King of Washington Street. In his article, Cromwell lists some of Arda's Sunday dishes, such as mutton neck and stuffed eggplant, at times occasionally feeling the need to describe to his reader exactly what the ingredients to the dishes were. For example, he explains okra as a vegetable resembling beans, and laban, or a traditional style of buttermilk, also known as fermented milk, is described as thickened milk, prepared in a peculiarly Syrian way, a dessert. Beyond his confusion over okra and yogurt, Cromwell is clearly puzzled by some of the offerings. The bread and pastry are even stranger. A Syrian loaf is likened unto a gigantic circular corn cake, four inches in diameter. It is of wheat, puffs at the center, and when broken, is discovered to be little more than a well-browned outer crust. Despite Cromwell's confusion, and more than a little condescension, you do get the impression he actually enjoyed his time at Arta's. It must be known that Arta's is one of Syria's finest restaurants. Even to an American palate, Arta's cooking is tasty and delicate. And more than a hundred years later, many of the dishes Cromwell describes at Arta's are still familiar to third-generation Syrian or Lebanese Americans like Linda. Uh, and all of these dishes except the mutton neck, which I don't recognize as a as something that I've eaten at home, everything else my mother used to make and my grandmother used to make. So it's very, it's, it's completely typical. And kibbe, which is what he's calling kubi, or I'm not sure what he's, how he got that. Um, you know, I eat it now. The fanciest restaurant in, the fanciest Mediterranean restaurant in New York makes it. It's ground lamb um, mixed with cracked wheat which we call burdel, and, and spices, uh, what we call bahar, which is a, a mixed spice with pepper. I'm not going to get all of these right. Cardamom, cumin, uh, maybe some cinnamon. 
And then, and, oh, and pine nuts. I forgot the most important ingredient. Mixed in and baked in the oven. Oh, it's so delicious. I'm actually getting hungry talking about it. <laughs> Not all Syrian-owned restaurants chose to serve food exclusively from their homeland. And not all chose to remain in the small neighborhood of Little Syria. One restaurant, called Khalil's, literally spanned the gap between the Syrian neighborhood around Washington Street and all that lay beyond. Located on prestigious Park Place, just steps from New York City Hall, it featured not just one kind of cuisine, but four or five. Taking up three buildings, Khalil's was a Manhattan institution in the first decades of the 20th century. That the one Syrian restaurant that catered to Americans rather than to other Syrians, which was called Khalil's, um, was an incredible place on Park Row um, in lower Manhattan, but not in the Syrian colony at all. And it had seating for a thousand, four, four or five different themed restaurants in within that um, huge space that they had. They had a Roman restaurant. They had a Greek restaurant. They had an Arab Orientalist restaurant. They had live orchestras. And they were very amazingly successful. And so they served mostly American food. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Except in their Orientalist restaurant where they would serve, um, you know, a sort of American corruption of, of Arab food as well. Patrons to Khalil's could even buy postcards, so-called Souvenirs of Khalil's, which showed the cavernous space where all 1,000 diners could be seated. Palm trees decorate a vast and ornate interior space with paneled ceilings and marble columns. Phonographs play the latest songs from the world-renowned opera singer Enrique Caruso, while a live orchestra in the restaurant plays backup harmonies. The few menus we have surviving from Khalil's show a distinctly Americanized menu— no kebab or pita here. Instead, there's baked country sausage, chicken patties, Boston baked beans, and of course, the classic American hamburger, known at the time as hamburger steak. We'll put up some of these old postcards and menus on the show notes at our website, so you can take a look at these for yourself. The restaurant culture of Little Syria worked as a neighborhood focal point where families and neighbors could gather together and share meals from home, outside of their often dark and crowded tenements. But these places also served as entry points into the Syrian community for the rest of New York, like we saw with Cromwell Child from 1899. Non-Syrians visited these restaurants, curious about the cuisine of this Lower West Side Manhattan community. And between the recently arrived Syrians and the resident New Yorkers, the interest to relate to each other through food 
was seen on both sides of the table. Restaurants like Khalil's created menus catering to what was considered American palates at the time. But there's an interesting and underlying element of exoticizing here, on both sides. With American journalists considering themselves as explorers, venturing into Washington Street establishments to try what they considered unusual Syrian foods, or the staff at Khalil's restaurant, providing three different menus to guests, one American, one European, and one Oriental. Beyond the food, the owners of Khalil's provided an international cornucopia for their guests, with four differently themed smoking dens in the basement, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and Moorish, alongside a traditional German Rathskeller, kind of like an underground beer or wine cellar. This perhaps was the truest encapsulation of the New York melting pot in a single business. But restaurants were only one aspect of the emergent food culture of Little Syria in New York. Grocery stores and market stalls served as just as important community touchstones. And when it comes to grocery stores, it would be impossible to talk about the Syrian influence in New York without discussing the famous Sahadis. But more on that after the break. This is probably obvious, but I love facts. Love them to pieces. And when I'm researching episodes for the feast, I'm as happy as a clam digging through papers and articles to find the evidence behind past meal or historic dish. That's why I love Care Of, a new kind of vitamin company that makes it super easy for you to meet your personal diet and health goals. They are committed to showing you the science behind each of their products. And Care Of's team of physicians and researchers help you to create a personalized plan according to your nutritional needs. Once you find a plan that works, they'll send you a custom shipment every month. Want to know whether a vitamin or supplement is right for you? Want to know the latest research on it? You can find all that directly on Care Of's website. No more reading tiny little labels. Just type in the vitamin or supplement you're interested in, and they'll give you a clear, easy-to-read description. They'll even refer you to specific scientific studies so you can read and decide for yourself. You can go to TakeCareOf.com now and take a free quiz to get your own personalized recommendation. And right now, Care Of is offering Feast listeners a special offer. Use the offer code FEAST and get 50% off your first month's order. Remember, it's www.TakeCareOf.com and the offer code is FEAST for 50% off your first month's order. Today, the Washington Street of the 1890s and 1900s we've been exploring is long gone. Arta's closed years ago, as did Khalil's. To find the little Syria of today's New York, we're going to take a quick trip. From the lower west end of Manhattan, through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, over to Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. Here we'll meet up with blogger, Brooklyn resident, and author of the New York City Kitchen Cookbook, Tracy Curvels, who's going to show us a bit around this new little Syria. Um, my name is Tracy Curvels, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. 
And I recently published a cookbook called The New York City Kitchen. And all of my recipes in the book are inspired by all the wonderful shops that we have here in New York. Atlantic Avenue is a very long street. And you can actually walk to the end of Atlantic Avenue and you can take a ferry there right over to Manhattan. So you can see Manhattan from the end of Atlantic Avenue. Atlantic Avenue stretches from the banks of the East River all the way to Richmond Hill in Queens. But it's that section, as Tracy says, closest to the water, where you can find shop after shop of Syrian spices, breads, olives, and more. Uh, we have Sahadi's, which is this wonderful Middle Eastern grocery store. And that's a place to pop in for olives and nuts and cheese and phyllo dough and sauces and pomegranate paste and just a lot of wonderful different types of ingredients. And if you go there on the weekend, it's just crowded with people standing around the buckets of olives and people are calling out what they what they want to order. It's not sprawling, but it's not one of the tiny shops either. Uh, some of the other shops nearby, including Damascus and Oriental Pastry and Grocery, those are smaller stores. In fact, they're kind of bustling with tons of ingredients and you have to meander through and, you know, walk behind other people. Those are more crowded. But Sahadi's is a pretty good size, but it's not sprawling like a regular supermarket. All three stores are institutions in the neighborhood, with Damascus Bakery's famous bread and Oriental Pastry's legendary spice blends. But if you're looking for the Grand Dame of Atlantic Avenue, it's hard to argue with Sahadi's, whether in size or history. But as much as Sahadi's may be connected with Atlantic Avenue today, the store began over a hundred years ago, back in Manhattan, right around Washington Street, with a man named Abraham Sahadi. Abraham Sahadi, he came to the United States in 1888, so he wasn't one of the earliest of the um, immigrants, but relatively, relatively early. And he um, did a lot of things. He wasn't always in the grocery business. He started a restaurant in 1895 at 45 Washington Street. Um, so he didn't go into the grocery business really until 1897, which was pretty late because a lot of people had started businesses already in the 1880s. The early Sahadis had a few early locations, eventually settling in at 87 Washington Street where business really started to pick up. Linda Jacobs has discovered some old photos that reveal what it would have been like to shop at Abraham Sahadi's more than a hundred years ago. You may have even had a run-in with her great-uncle, who apparently worked at the shop a long time ago. So he's standing behind the counter with his wife, Sakia, and there's a woman standing in front of the counter, a customer. So you can see bottles piled up behind, uh, in the on the racks, and I and I think that I know that the top shelf is his arak. Then he has um, water pipes that he's selling on the counter. Um, he has things hanging from the ceiling which you can't see very well, but there's a brass lamp that I know he's selling, and then scales in front of them because they're selling bulk food, of course, as they still do. We'll put a copy of this photo up on our website so you can see the early Sahadis for yourself. But we still haven't answered our question. How did Sahadis, and Little Syria in general, 
get from Washington Street in Manhattan to Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn? Well, to answer that, we need to do a little digging in more than one sense of the word. First, we need to understand how the perception of the Syrian community in the U.S. changed in the early 20th century. Well, the 1924 American quota law put an end to all Syrian immigration. That was the stop, absolute stop, because they, um, there was a very big nativist reaction to immigrants, um, as we're seeing today in the United States. And they finally, they, it started in the 1890s. And they tried and tried and tried and tried to restrict immigration from what they considered to be the unsavory parts of the world, which were Eastern Europe and Russia for the Jews, the Middle East for the Syrians, um, China for the Chinese. Um, and they tried to restrict immigration for all of those people. They succeeded early in stopping Chinese immigration, but they were unable to stop Jewish Middle Eastern um, immigration um, as early as they wanted, but by 1924, they stopped it um, absolutely flat, and Syrians were restricted to 100 people per year. And that's from a high of about 14,000 a year that had come before the First World War. And that was true until um, Lyndon Johnson essentially rescinded it. I mean, there were still quotas, but he essentially rescinded it in 1965. So there's a hole in, this, in Syrian immigration for those 40 years. Beyond shifts in U.S. immigration politics, Syrian communities in the U.S. also found themselves under attack from other, more local forces. To New Jersey, Harlem River to the Bronx and Westchester Parkways, and East River to Brooklyn and Queens. Some of these tunnels and bridges lead into the system of parkways and highways that bring Long Island within easy reach of the motorist. The island provides nearby... You see, by the 1930s and 1940s, New York was all about transportation. Even with the Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and Manhattan bridges complete, New York now looked down rather than up to get people on and off Manhattan. The first part of the massive project that was the Lincoln Tunnel which connected New York to New Jersey, was opened in 1937. And not three years later, another tunnel was proposed, something that would eventually be called the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Yeah, it connects lower Manhattan, like the very tip of Manhattan, to South Brooklyn, which is near Atlantic Avenue, not directly next to it, but pretty close to it. But if you're going to build a tunnel for cars particularly as something as monumental as a tunnel under the East River. You're going to need a lot of space to get the cars in and out of it. So quite a bit of space was put aside in the lower part of Manhattan for the tunnel's entrance, on a small part of town known as Washington Street. Yeah, that was in the Little Syria neighborhood of Manhattan, which is slightly south of where the World Trade Center was, and... It's where the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel is now located, the entrance for that. And so that neighborhood was raised in the 40s to build this tunnel that connects lower Manhattan to Brooklyn. And a lot of those people who lived there and had shops there, they moved over to Atlantic Avenue. 
With Washington Street's transformation into the entrance for the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, many Syrians relocated to Atlantic Avenue, where already a small Syrian community had been established for several years. But not everyone moved, at least right away. What about Abraham Zahadi and his famous grocery store? At the turn of the century, he took in his two brothers, three grocers with him, and they called it Zahadi Brothers. And he still uh, was working with his brothers by, in 1914. And then um, in a, at about that time, at about in the early 1920s, his two brothers split off and he um, became a sole owner again. A couple of the brothers died and the brothers and the nephew moved to Brooklyn and opened what is now Sahadi's. But Abraham Sahadi kept his business on Washington Street until his death in 1952. Even after Abraham's death, the store on Atlantic Avenue continued, becoming the institution people know and love today. Managed currently by two direct descendants of Abraham, Christine Zahadi Whalen and Ron Zahadi. You know what? Most people come in here, they know exactly what to do because we have a lot of longtime customers. So they come in, they grab a number, they know to wait. And then my guys are yours. 21. They stay with you, put things in bags for you. They'll give you samples, which we're really well known for. Lebanese are extremely hospitable and they're very much food people. And that food culture is passed down through generations. Sahadi's has become such a fixture in the neighborhood and in New York generally that in 2017 it was presented with the American Classic Award by the James Beard Foundation, an award honoring restaurants with timeless appeal beloved in its region for quality food that reflects the character of its community. But Sahadi's is just one among the many food stores you can find on Atlantic Avenue today, something Tracy Crevels knows all about. And in her book, she's created recipes using ingredients that highlight many of these Syrian shops, including Sahadi's, Damascus bread, and Oriental pastry, all classics of Atlantic Avenue. Yeah, so Damascus has that fresh flatbread, that's what they're known for. And they also have a lot of um, sweets and pastries and nuts and desserts filled with custards and Turkish delight and lots of different kinds of sweets and fun things to try and take home. But they're mainly known for their fluffy pita type bread. Yeah, and it's right near Sahadi's. It's on the same side of Atlantic Avenue. Is that so? You could pick up bread there. You could go to Sahadi's and get other ingredients, and then you could cross the street and go to Oriental Pastry and Grocery. That's the kind of store you would go in, and these brothers would be very friendly with you and offer you cardamom tea and help you pick out ingredients. It's the kind of store you walk in, and it's just full and full of ingredients, and they have barrels of spices and barrels of olives and. You know, I've heard that you can go in and ask for a certain spice blend and they'll make it for you there. If you wanted to make a certain dish, you know, I make a tagine, which requires a lot of different spices, but I'm sure you could just go in there and they'd whip it up for you if you asked them, which is generally a chicken dish with olives and potatoes and different ingredients. And you could get the olives at Sahadi's and you could get the flatbread at Damascus for dipping 
And then you could get the spice blend at Oriental Pastry. And then you could pick up some dessert there (laughs) for a full dinner. We'll put up the recipe for Tracy's Chicken Tagine up on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. Although it may not be a traditional Syrian dish, Tracy's Moroccan Tagine is just the next step in the culinary mix that is New York City, using the best Syrian and Lebanese ingredients to make a Moroccan recipe that is truly Brooklyn. Even with Sahadi's James Beard Award this year, there's much more to be done in uncovering the history and contribution of the Syrian community in the United States. Linda Jacobs is already at work on another book, this time exploring the role of Syrian communities in each of the 50 states. Back on the home front of New York City, an entire exhibition dedicated to the history of Little Syria was held last year at the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration. There are even currently plans to try and preserve some of the old building facades that date back to the years of Little Syria around the Washington Street area. But you don't have to look much further than the long lines at Sahadi's on the weekend to understand the impact the Syrian community has had in New York for over 100 years. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, with editorial assistance this week from Lynn Provencher. A huge thank you to Linda Jacobs and Tracy Curvels for their invaluable help and research in putting together this episode. We've included links to both their websites and their books on our website. You gotta go check them out. We'll also have links up to Oh My Sweet Land, the play we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that combines the current Syrian refugee crisis with a rich culinary heritage of the region. Music today by Jazar, the Hubert Victor Orchestra, Andy G. Cohen, and of course, Enrique Caruso. You can find out more information about these great artists on our webpage. And finally, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's free, it comes once a month, and keeps you up to date with all the great goings-on at the feast. And next month, we'll be revealing the results of our listener survey poll. We'll be introducing some giveaways, not to mention some new rewards for our Patreon supporters. To find out more, head to patreon.com slash feastpodcast. And join us next time as we dig deep into kosher law in American history. And trust me, there'll be way more pork and shellfish than you might be expecting. That's next time on The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.